So, good morning. If you're in the U.S., let me get a share set up here. Um, good afternoon if you're in Europe. And uh, good evening, maybe uh, a good morning like wee hours of the morning if you're in some of our newest areas of growth, um, Australia and uh, Thailand and uh, the Philippines. Getting a lot of new uh, viewers in those parts of the world and uh, very excited to have you on board. Today, we're going to be talking about the coronary angiogram and how you might, if you get one of these, uh, most of us, when we look at the actual uh, results, feel like, man, this is very definitive imaging. That's the good part. The, de the bad part, though, is a much bigger issue. You're headed down a slippery slope for getting instrumentation when instrumentation has just been demonstrated. It doesn't work. It's lifestyle that makes the real changes. Um, if you're new to the channel, you, there's a whole lot of content out there about how we can uh, really uh, prevent heart attack and stroke. You, it's not a good idea to wait until you have a heart attack or stroke and then try to figure out how to get out of that. We haven't figured, we're not very good at growing back brain tissue or heart tissue. Uh, so the real program, the real promise is in preventing it in the first place. And there's a lot more to prevention than the vast majority of us understand. Uh, so here's some previous content that uh, we've talked about. How Alzheimer's should really maybe be called type three diabetes and why so many scientists are doing that these days. Um, We've talked about the prevention myths book and the prevention book. This book is about stress test, a lousy way to measure plaque. We've covered that. We'll mention that again today as we start getting deeper and deeper in terms of what's the best way to really assess your risk for heart attack and stroke. Um, and what are the standard ways of doing it? And What's wrong with those standard ways? And what are some better ways? How to do it right? Um, other content we've covered recently would be risk factors for type 2 diabetes. Actually, they're starting to get some uh, clarity on some genetic issues, which is very, very interesting. Uh, we've known for a long time age is probably the biggest risk factor. Many people don't want to acknowledge that, but it's sort of like right in front of your face. It's one of those things that's so in front of your face, you tend to ignore it. But people get type two, their insulin receptors start uh, wearing out. They start aging, they start getting resistant to insulin. And when that happens, that's when you get type two diabetes. Now, one of the, the big items that's been growing over the, especially over the past two decades is the obesity epidemic. Your uh, body fat, which we've discovered over the past 10, 20 years is not just an inert energy storage tissue. It's an, it's a hormonal tissue and it secretes things that create insulin resistance. So a lot of this kind of content, uh, you see this channel is really all about helping people uh, prevent heart attack and stroke, prevent the things that are most likely to kill you or disable you. Um, and guess what? Unfortunately, uh, it's really clear that your primary care doc doesn't understand not only how to manage 
the primary causes, three quarters of which uh, or more is insulin resistant. But your typical internist, family practitioner, uh, cardiologist doesn't really know how to diagnose it either. So that's not me. That's not me trying to, um, uh, that's not self-aggrandizement or marketing or anything like that. That's just the facts. We've presented those facts multiple times, and uh, you can see that on the channel. That's medical science that's been developed uh, originally by some of my old um, a cohort at Hopkins, but now many other uh, learning institutions have gone in and have uh, put that message out there that docs need to learn more about how to diagnose and manage, especially prediabetes, because it's what's killing us. And uh, guess what? The reality is that uh, even though that creates, makes medicine more of a buyer beware type of environment, there are ways you can learn this. I mean, I see people uh, most days of the week uh, with the YouTube channel practice uh, patients that I see that know this. Uh, I saw a patient yesterday who uh, had to go into the hospital for um, uh, for a wreck on a bicycle. And uh, he knew more about his diabetes and more about how to handle that diabetes than any of the doctors there, they argued with him for a while and then they began to scratch their head and say, Hmm, you're right. Then they talk, took off down the wrong path, wanting to give insulin. And it's like, no, that's the last thing that that patient needed. He was managing it very well without insulin. In fact, the vast majority of type two patients can manage this and should manage this without insulin injections. If your body's not accepting insulin very well, you really need to figure just slamming more insulin in there is uh, an option of last resort. So if you look at our channel, there are multiple ways to, to get this kind of information. Uh, this is, this talks about webinars where you can actually share your own uh, results uh, with others and find out more importantly, something that you don't do in a regular type of um practice with a doc, actually see where other people land. Now, you don't have to share your own information if you don't want to, but you can, again, begin to understand with definitive testing, what is uh, the level of your problem, if any? There are other ways to get information. Uh, we've got courses. Uh, many times we've offered them for free. Um, even when we charge, the most we've ever charged, I think is like 49 bucks, 39 bucks. Uh, there are multiple times and places where you can uh, look for uh, an opportunity to get these, get this information uh, for free. And again, it's the core stuff that your, your primary care doctors tend not to understand. Insulin resistance, uh, cardiovascular inflammation, and how that figures into this whole process heart attack and stroke prevention, and uh, plaque. Today, we're going to be talking more about plaque and one of the most common, uh, most popular ways of assessing plaque. The, um, the uh, going into the cath lab and getting a coronary cath, or what we call a PC angiogram, percutaneous, per meaning through, cutaneous meaning skin. So, uh, putting a, a catheter up through the skin, uh, fifteen to fifty thousand dollars process. 
you know, people say because it's invasive, it's really dangerous. The reality is the process itself is not quite so dangerous. Uh, what is dangerous is the assumption that, okay, I need, uh, if I see plaque, I need to put a stent or get a bypass graft. And then you start going down that path. Even those aren't that dangerous. The real danger is assuming that, okay, I got a stent. I got my pipes cleaned out. I'm good to go now. No, you're not good to go. You, putting a stent in or a bypass graft has been proven many times recently with state-of-the-art global studies like the ischemia trial, the, um, uh, the courage trial, other trials, uh, orbiter trial that are showing that these things don't prevent heart attack and stroke. That's what we thought, or that's what doctors thought, but they really don't do that. So another way to get access to this up until now has been monthly subscriptions. With our uh, new uh, programs with uh, Medicare Advantage down in Alabama, we are planning to move the channel practice to more of a Medicare type uh, of practice where we accept Medicare. Uh, that will change a lot of things in terms of uh, the monthly subscription plans and things like that. That's still a to be decided. We're going to be uh, getting deeper into that discussion with some uh, billing uh, experts. Well, the, the problem is this. Uh, Medicare usually tends to say, look, and pardon me, and I've got something, it, uh, I've got an itch on my nose. That's the last thing you want to have going on. But when you're speaking to a group, but uh, you know, it is what it is. So <clears throat> the um, Medicare says, look, we do not want people to be able to have to pay for something that they can get through Medicare. Uh, as we start accepting Medicare down in the Alabama uh, programs, these are different programs and they probably don't, uh, don't fit either legally or otherwise. But again, our goal is to be uh, beyond uh, a Medicare billing reproach. So we're going to be making some adjustments there. It's going to probably have a, um, a two-way impact. Um, on the one hand, uh, more people could access it because of accepting Medicare. On the other hand, um, because of the work that we're doing in the Medicare program, I'm not likely to be able to... Uh, to spread myself as far and, and see as many patients long-term as I've been seeing the past couple of years for the, for the channel practice. Uh, in other developments, I met with uh, Dr. David Wright, uh, uh, Dr. Craig Back, several other uh, folks, and we're starting to look at the potential of expanding our physician access. So a lot of things going on with the channel practice. Um, uh, no comments about the website or the, uh, the courses. We discussed the, um, the book, but now let's get into the topic for today, coronary angiogram, or headed down that slippery slope. So here's a definition. The uh, coronary angiography is the procedure that uses x-ray and usually some uh, tracer dye, a uh, nuclear tracer dye to form images of the coronary arteries. You inject a radiology a dye or a nuclear dye into the vein. Um, 
Well, that's not really the vein. Let me make some corrections while we're going through this. You inject it uh, straight into the artery itself. You thread this catheter. As you can see here, you insert the catheter, usually down into the femoral artery. Some people, sometimes it's been done into an artery in the arm, but usually in the femoral artery because you have better access there. Uh, then you thread that up to the heart, go near the uh, aortic valve, and right behind each of the leaflets of the aortic valve, you end up having um, an entrance to separate arteries um, for the heart. It's not a test uh, for screening healthy people uh, of any age. You know, we talk about the CIMT. The CIMT has been done on tens of thousands of kids at birth, five-year-olds, 10-year-olds. Why would you do that? Well, there's no risk. Uh, with all the other procedures we've talked about, including both calcium score and or, or, a, or what's called a CT angiogram, with both of those, you get some radiation. So you'll never see... Um, examples of calcium scores done on healthy uh, people, done on uh, five-year-olds, kids, 10-year-olds, things like that. You see that with CIMT because CIMT uses ultrasound, which there's no radiation there. Uh, calcium score uses radiation. Um, CT angiogram uses radiation. And the most radiation of any of these processes is a one of these a coronary angiogram following a, a nuclear stress test that is significant radiation usually we say well with any of these problems you don't get enough radiation for it to be significant compared to the risk of a heart attack not quite so true especially in these young people these 40 year olds who are getting an annual uh, nuclear stress test and many times uh, multiple coronary angi angiographies. Those folks are actually getting enough radiation to be worried about. So <clears throat> if you go into, uh, you, you just Google coronary angiogram, you'll find stories like this one. This one was written by a hospital to talk about why our hospital's angiograms are better because our doctors are better. And let's just read through it. Six years ago, Alex scheduled an appointment with a cardiologist at his wife's insistence. He failed a stress test. So what do you do with a, with a positive stress test? And that means, uh, in their version, it means failed a stress test. It showed a blockage, but the doctor said it was not uh, severe enough to treat. So Alex scheduled another visit. He had shortness of breath and fatigue this time. The result was the same, but the different cardiologist told him he needed a triple bypass. So here we go down that slippery slope. So this is the hospital talking, and they said, we, uh, he asked for a second opinion with our doctor, Dr. Pastor Cervantes. Uh, they scheduled another cardiac cath. Here we go. Uh, only one vessel required treatment. Uh, and Dr. Uh, Pastor Cervantes used a robot for the pre precise treatment uh, placement of that stent. So instead of getting a, a bypass uh, surgery, he got only a stent. Mm. And that prevented what? So how are angiograms done? So again, as you see these pictures, 
the the first angiogram, which I think we'll talk about the first one in a minute, it was an accident. Um, but when the accident occurred, the doctor looked at it. There's a doc from Mayo at that point, and he was doing this for uh, for kids. And we'll talk about why again in just a minute. But then he got this picture. The heart stopped, by the way, when he did that first one by accident. And that's a bad day. You're doing a procedure and the heart stops. He was able to get it started back. So that really wasn't that big. of, And it didn't cause permanent damage to, to the kid's heart. But then he started looking at these images. And for any of you that have seen a coronary cath image, you begin to realize, man, this is, this looks, it appears to be definitive. So it's like, hmm, well, this is very definitive. We know whether we've got plaque. Unfortunately, again, that's based on the assumption that if you've got plaque, that's where you're going to get a heart attack. And that's not the case. To perform a coronary angiogram, the area is cleaned and shaved. And like we said, that's usually in the femoral or the groin area. The doc injects a local anesthetic, then punctures into the femoral artery. A catheter is threaded through the skin into the artery using a dilator or guide wire combination. The doctor watches an x-ray screen to guide the uh, catheter's progress through the aorta to the heart. And if you look at this, this one over here, you begin to see some of the image of the aorta and the aortic valves and that artery coming right off behind the leaflet of the aortic valve. The catheter allows, to measure, uh, allows us to measure blood pressure in the heart chambers, view interiors of the blood vessels, take blood samples, etc. The uh, doc then injects dye into the arteries and takes a set of rapid x-ray images. Following the procedure, the patient must lie with a pressure bandage at the area of the catheter's insertion, the, femoral, the groin, for, for several hours to avoid bleeding. Again, it sounds like it's really dangerous sticking that needle into the artery and the groin, and it used to be a lot more dangerous than it is now. Again, there is some danger. There's no no way you can do all that and not create some procedural danger. But by far, the biggest challenge is people thinking that's got me fixed. So the first angiogram was not really a, um, it wasn't a coronary angiogram. As you can see from this picture, it was a, um, a brain angiogram. Uh, the, it was completed in 1927. Portuguese physician Egas Moniz at the University of Lisbon. Uh, it was an angiogram of the vessels of the brain. The first heart cath uh, was done by uh, uh, physician Werner uh, Forsman. He inserted a tube into the cubital vein of his arm, then guided the tube to the right chamber of his heart. He took an x-ray to prove his success. And again, that's basically just a heart cath. But the first time you actually did a significant um, coronary angiogram, looking at the specific arteries of the, um, of the heart, this was done by Mason Soames. Uh, again, I believe he was at Mayo. It was, he was a pediatric cardiologist. And as we said, it was done by accident. He ended up, he was looking at the aorta of kids that had some 
um, genetic uh, aortic problems like, uh, oh, I'm blanking on um, aortic uh, dilatation or dilation. Um, I, I, somebody help I'm having a word uh, word finding problem. Sticklers is one of the issues, but it's clearly not the most common. Anyway, he was looking at these to measure how much dilation the aorta had had. And, and by mistake, he slipped the end of that catheter into uh, behind that leaf of the aortic valve and into the, uh, the vessel, it's the coronary vessel itself. He, uh, he got a picture of an artery supplying the muscle of the heart, just like we talked about. And even though it was a bad day in terms of stopping the patient's heart and having to restart it, it was an incredible day for him because he, he figured he might be starting a whole new industry or a whole new focus within medicine. And sure enough, that's exactly what he did. But now it's what, 50 years later, and we're finding, well, if procedures could actually prevent heart attacks, then that may have been a good thing. But like so many things in uh, life and our journeys in science, we headed down some assumptions. Uh, we headed down some very big paths with our assumptions. And it's only, what, 50 years later that we're beginning to understand that the assumption that a procedure is going to prevent a heart attack is not correct. And again, I know I'll get plenty of haters on this, folks that are not familiar with the rest of the details of uh, actual prevention of heart attack and stroke are going to say, no, 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 I had one of those and it prevented my heart attack. Okay. We'll, we'll deal with those haters. I mean, you don't go on YouTube and, and make statements like this without b being uh, ready to get some hater comments. Anyhow, back to the, to the script. Why are coronary angiograms prescribed and what are the risks? Angina, chest pain, suspicious findings on a stress test, uh, function of the right and left sides of the heart, left heart capacity, cardiac dysrhythmias, valvular heart disease, myocardial, myo meaning heart, I mean uh, muscle and cardiol meaning heart. So heart muscle diseases, congenital heart diseases, heart failure. Now for most of the, those, uh, actually these make sense, but the most, by far the most common reason is let's see if you've got a um, plaque in your coronary artery. And those are the ones where you really need to think twice, three and four times before you get that done. The complication rates, as I said, is 1%. And by far the, the, Biggest complication rate is some uh, extra bleeding down in the groin area where it was inserted. And uh, the vast majority of those are, uh, are dealt with without long-term problems. The most common issues, oh, well, as I said, most common issues bleeding from the femoral artery, occasional guide wire tears in the artery wall. Uh, and you do get some infections in blood clots. Those become far more serious. Death rates, as I said, pretty low given the fact that you're taking an instrument and going into somebody's heart uh, or at least, uh, yeah, I mean, you're getting to the arteries, you're going into somebody's uh, arteries as they supply the heart. Um, death rates 0.05%. In other words, um, up, and up to a quarter of a percent. So 0.05% is one twentieth of 1%. Um, 
0.25% is one quarter of 1%. So one out of 400 all the way. And that's really too high. It's not that, uh, it's not that high at all. Um, it is closer to uh, those lower numbers, which is uh, what one twentieth of a hundredth. So pretty low numbers. Now, even with those, you have to realize that sound for many of you, you might say, well, whoa, even a higher limit of one out of 400, that's a big death rate. Stop. Think about it. A huge portion of these. And in fact, in most cases, I would say uh, in most cases, you're already doing this kind of instrumentation on somebody who's got a very sick heart. In a lot of cases, uh, that's the, the, the reality. And um, so, you know, if you're doing this on people that are relatively healthy and you're just looking to see how much uh, plaque you have, how much, quote, risk, end quote, that you have, that's way closer to those, uh, to those lower numbers. The most significant, and again, you start looking at that and you compare that to somebody who's at significant or high risk, by definition, high risk, what we use for, for a definition of high risk is probability of a heart attack within uh, 10 years of 10% or higher. So, uh, you know, again, the, um, the uh, and half of those resulting in sudden death. So uh, 5% probability of sudden death over the next 10 years is very much higher than the, than the death rates we're talking about from instrumentation itself. I hope that's clear. If, it, if I've boogered it up too much, go ahead and, and ask uh, questions to help me clarify in the uh, Q&A session. The most significant risk is unnecessary stent or bypass and further delays in the actual treatment, which, again, is lifestyle. Uh, New England Journal of Medicine. This is one of the articles. In, initial invasive or convert, uh, conservative strategy for stable coronary disease. It's conservative strategy, strategy, which means more than anything else, lifestyle. They, you know, it's a physician's magazine. Physicians think about giving medications uh, and unfortunately, in most of this research, the assumption is made that your typical patient will not make lifestyle changes because of you know, history that docs have with patients. That's a problem as well. Uh, second article, also New England Journal, uh, optimal uh, medical therapy with or without PCI. PCI is what we said a few minutes ago, uh, percutaneous um, intervention for stable coronary disease. Uh, and as I mentioned, the Orbita study, that's the next one, uh, percutaneous coronary intervention and stable angina. This was an interesting study. We, uh, it was done in England because most people think that it never would have been, it would have passed a human subjects review here in the U.S. They actually took people who were slated for or th slated for stent. And they said, we're going to do a double blind. We'll even take you into the ER. We'll put you to sleep. Uh, the study group uh, doesn't get anything. We just put you to sleep and wake you back up. The control group gets the stent that uh, had originally been recommended. And as I've said uh, multiple times in other uh, videos, 
at the end of the day, the study group had the same number of events that the control group had. So whether you had a stent or not did not impact your, um, your probability of having an event, of having a heart attack. Now, for those of you who think this just doesn't make sense, this is crazy. Doc, you're an idiot. Um, I mean, you get all this stuff. This, this has been a very hot debate for, you know, it continues, it has continued to heat up until at this point, so many um, studies are coming out showing that your typical way of handling heart attack and stroke and quote, preventing heart attacks with instrumentations just don't work. Well, go back. I mean, if that sounds really weird to you, go, go back and look at this article. This, the article that uh, this is talking about is, uh, has broken records. It's been downloaded from, um, it's been downloaded more than any other science medical article. Uh, and it talks about why most published research findings are false. Uh, John Ioannidis is a, uh, a physician. Uh, obvious, uh, for many of us, it's obvious he's uh, got he's uh, Greek descent. That's where Ioannidis comes from. And you can debate with me how to pronounce his last name. Anyhow, he's a well-respected doc in Stanford whose uh, major perspective has been to talk about and show in, in studies how so much bad science gets into the uh, into medical publications. So <clears throat> let's go back and, and while we're talking about then, and let's go back and look at one of my messy older slides. Sorry about that, but it, uh, we'll, we'll clean that up uh, as we, uh, as we, um, we, we, I did a transition on slides and it created some of this challenge. So, uh, plaque's important. How do you measure it? We talked about Framingham uh, a couple of weeks ago. Framingham is a town uh, about an hour from Boston. And a major, there's more information regarding epidemiology of heart attacks. What causes risk for heart attack and stroke? More coming out of the Framingham studies than any other individual place in the world. Uh, when you're when you come in and your doc starts saying, OK, this is a 64 year old uh, Caucasian male. He had a 10 pack year history of smoking, but he stopped smoking more than 10 years ago. So the smoking is not really creating that much risk at this point. But the risk is coming from 64 his age um, and his gender. And he's uh, got a family history. And does he have diabetes? Does he not? Those things are all came from Framingham and there's a formal Framingham risk calculator. Now that's good. That's what your doc will start using in the very beginning. And usually your recommendation from that doc regarding whether you take statins or whether you get a stress test comes from that comes from the Framingham risk calculator. And usually he or she's not really using a formal calculator, although it's available. He or she's using what they remember in their head I'm not going to talk about uh, whether they should be, you know, whether what, what they remember in their head is good enough. But I will say we covered this again a few weeks ago. Framingham, uh, 
has some problems. It's not perfect. Uh, and in fact, when you start looking at recent data, Framingham probably doubles the risk, uh, especially for females. And again, guess what? Uh, what? What recommendations come out of that risk assessment? Stress tests and statins. So especially with women, you're probably getting, a, you are, you're getting a lot more women getting unnecessary stress tests and unnecessary statins based on this. That last statement implies that there are necessary stress tests. They're really, well, I don't use them. Uh, you shouldn't use them. Uh, speaking of stress tests, that's the next thing that uh, you talk about in terms of how you measure uh, plaque. We've had multiple videos talking about stress tests, how it's a flow study, not a uh, a plaque assessment study. What does that mean? It measures the flow of, of blood through your heart. When do you get a positive stress test? Well, you get a positive stress test uh, when you lose more than 50% of the flow in the arteries of your heart. Two thirds of heart attack and stroke occur with, uh, with plaque that is not causing 50% impact on the flow. So if you understand that, it becomes very clear why, if you just Google this, uh, false positive, false negative uh, stress tests, uh, depending on the exact search words you use, uh, most of the time, you'll, the first one you'll get, it comes from the NIH, and the NIH is saying between 25 and 30% of negative stress tests are false negatives. And between, well, so what about false positives? At least, you know, if you get a false positive, um, you're okay, right? Well, here's what happens. With the false positive, you end up going in and getting one of these next things, a uh, coronary, coronary angiogram, which we're talking about today, which is, you know, has got a whole list of problems associated with it. Again, leading down that slippery slope taking you further down that slippery slope for um, instrumentation to prevent a heart attack as opposed to lifestyle. Uh, well, what about, uh, that's the false positive. What about the false negatives? We've talked about that. Um, Big Russ, Tim Russert is the, is, was the poster boy for the problem of the false negative. You get a, uh, you say, hey, doc, we got some problems here. I may have some risk. Uh, let's do a stress test. You get a false negative, And like Tim Russert, you die a few weeks later from a heart attack. So mm, not a good scenario. That, that's the stress test. A coronary angiogram uh, is the next, the next uh, focus point or the next uh, step along the way of your typical assessment of plaque. <sighs> well, again, we're talking about the problems associated with that. You know, in the in this whole uh, area, people start saying, well, okay, doc, you're criticizing everything we typically do. What are some other ways? I, I've suggested some other ways, calcium score, IMT, and CT angiogram. And I've actually talked about an ankylobrachial index. I have to tell you, I, I somewhat regret putting out the videos on the ankle brachial index. It's basically measuring the blood pressure in your arms and comparing it to the blood pressure in your uh, legs and ankles. 
the reason I regret putting that out there is because it really caught fire. A lot of people love to watch those videos. And then they keep saying, well, I mean, they ask more and more questions about it. The bottom line is, yes, the ankle brachial index is a way, but there's a lot of false positives, false negatives on those. I would not depend on an ankle brachial index um, for uh, assessing whether or not I have plaque. I did my own uh, and demonstrated how to do it in one of the videos. And I clearly have plaque. We know that. I, uh, a couple of years ago, I had a calcium score of, a, of 90 or 100. Uh, and I've had CIMTs, which indicate that I have, um, I have plaque. However, uh, my ankle brachial index doesn't indicate any problem. Well, it's because, it's because I, um, I get plenty of flow. And again, ankle brachial index is really looking again more at a flow study than anything else. And don't depend on an ankle brachial index. It might be cheap. It might be easy, but that's not a great way to do it. The, the next three are good ways to do it. And each of them has its, its pros and its cons. The calcium score is great in terms of, you, can, you know, it's calcium scores are us. You can find them on almost, you know, within two or three miles of, of a lot of people. I mean, they're just anywhere you see where you can get an x-ray is you can almost anywhere you can, can get an x-ray, you can get a calcium score. What's the downside to calcium score? Uh, another ups, upside is that when you get those calcium scores, you can depend on them too. Uh, both of those are significant advantages compared to the IMT or CIMT. Here's the downside. You don't really get any clarity regarding soft plaque. And soft plaque, you know, we've talked about, we, we mentioned cardiovascular inflammation before. Soft plaque is what causes heart attack, not calcified, stable plaque. And calcified, stable plaque is the only see, thing you're going to see on a calcium score. So, I mean, this that concept actually leads patients down to a lot of frustrating areas. For example, they'll come, they'll get started uh, with me or they'll get started with their own weight loss program and they'll go from a, um, and they'll be very successful. And yet what will happen is they'll get a, a pre and post calcium score and their calcium score shoots way up. They think, dang, I, I'm getting worse. I'm not getting better. Well, the reality is you are getting a worse calcium score, but that's being ref that's reflecting the fact that you're stabilizing soft plaque that was in there before that you didn't see. I have to talk a patient back down off a ledge, off of a ledge on, on a regular basis where they're saying, oh, things have gotten a lot worse and I got a calcium score uh, and that proves it. I thought I was getting a lot better. And it's like, do not let that... Um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? It means it, it means the opposite of what, what you think it don't let that surprise scare you. And most of all, don't let that surprise stop your progress in terms of improving your cardiovascular health. Number six is IMT intima media thickness test. Basically what that's doing is measuring the thickness between the intima lining of your artery and the media, the muscle layer. That's where plaque gets stuck. And if you get a lot of plaque and uh, you're still in a, a plaque building mode, that's inflammation. 
inflammation, cardiovascular inflammation, causes that intima lining to get leaky. And uh, we see protein spilling out of the urine. That's why we do a microalbumin creatinine ratio study. But we also see uh, um, LDL, especially small, dense LDL. Uh, going through that intima layer in the rest of the arterial tree and getting stuck because it won't go through that muscle media layer. That is plaque. You know, in terms of connecting diets, that's why so many people for so long thought, well, it's cholesterol that's causing the problem. It's, it's not the level of cholesterol. Cholesterol does matter and LDL does matter, but not nearly as much as inflammation the health of that intimal layer of your artery wall. So again, IMT is a great way to measure that. It is advantages. It, as we said before, there's no uh, radiation. You can do this on kids, healthy people. Uh, disadvantages is, you know, there's a significant garbage in garbage out. I mean, there's, it takes skill to do one of these correctly. It takes skill to understand exactly how to um, orient the, uh, the ultrasound wind. There's a new type of uh, IMT uh, coming out called uh, uh, Butterfly. I hope to have uh, Dr. Craig Bax, who's now using that. That gets over some of this garbage in, garbage out, because you can use that as a screening technique. It uses the same technology, and it gives you some screening uh, if you see a positive on the butterfly, often the next step will be to go get a, a true CIMT uh, with a group that, that really knows how to do this. Then the, uh, the final item, well, uh, the final, final item is a CT angiogram. Before you get confused, and people often get confused on this, they see number three, coronary angiogram, and number seven, CT angiogram. What's the difference between those two? They both are angiograms, angio meaning vessel, gram meaning picture. They both use uh, radiology dye or nuclear dye uh, to show this. They're both pictures of the artery wall. The difference is uh, where you put the, the catheter. With number seven, you just put it in a vein out in the arm. You don't thread the catheter up to the heart wall, uh, into the heart you just get a picture from there. So the CT angiogram is a much lower, uh, invasive, less invasive type of procedure. And studies are, have been coming out showing that it's really helpful. Things like the Scott trial, um, Scott Hart trial. And here's what happened. You'd say, well, okay, what kind of, did they must have done more procedures to for the people that got the CT angiograms because they saw the problems. <laughs> no, you didn't. The Scott Hart trial showed that uh, people that got a CT angiogram in addition, <coughs> excuse me, in addition to whatever their doctor wanted to do, <clears throat> those people had fewer heart attacks. They didn't have more procedures. They just had fewer heart attacks. <clears throat> so what's going on there? <clears throat> It hasn't been proven yet, but I think it's obvious to most of us that <clears throat> what's happening is the patient is beginning to see what kind of plaque they have, what kind of danger they have. <clears throat> I'm starting down that path again. Sorry about that. 
Um, <clears throat> and uh, like a classic, one of my patients said, yeah, I get my CT angiogram. I uh, taped it to the front of my refrigerator to remind me anytime I am getting ready to go get something to eat. So this slide just goes into some of the details that I covered. Uh, I will stop right now to take some questions and answers. And if we need to go back to talk about um, reasons for stent and bypass, we can talk about those later if somebody has an interest. But the uh, presentation itself is getting a little bit long in the tooth and my <clears throat> throat's getting a little bit scratchy here. It is, yes, I do take Ramipril, an ACE inhibitor, so that can cause some of this, but I've also got significant uh, seasonal allergies, and I abused uh, many of you with that uh, last week. Thank you for your patience. So here we go. Steve Carter, recent 9-17-21 CT angiogram indicated moderate to, se to severe eccentric calcification of LAD. Uh Proximal and trunk. Now what? Well, you know what? That reminds me. I, a friend of mine got me one of these, and I thought I would use it all the time. The reality is I don't. Uh, this is the first time I've, I, I can remember putting it on a video. If this is the human heart, and this is uh, true to size, about the size of your fist, uh, that would be the LAD. That's uh, where the um, left anterior descending and guess what? <clears throat> That's also called the Widowmaker. That's where most of these things happen. Now, the question, though, is uh, what, uh, what do you do about it? Well, <clears throat> I'm going to show another uh, model that we got that I never use. So this is a model of, uh, of a heart. You can't really, I mean, a, a model of vessels. So here's where you see a healthy vessel. That white lining is the uh, intima. The dark lining is the media or muscle layer. And then that pink lining on the outside is the what we call the adventitia. This, you can't really see that well, but you're starting to get some plaque. You're able to start seeing some of this now in terms of that yellow thing in there is what we call an atheroma. Uh, <clears throat> that's where... The, uh, it's pushing out into what we call the lumen or the, the hole where the blood flows. And it's due to um, plaque seeping through that intima layer, that white layer, and getting stuck, or LDL, because the white layer has gotten, in, gotten inflamed over three quarters of the time. It's gotten inflamed because of having hour after hour of glucose values over 140 or insulin values that are too high. Now, then the next one is um, a plaque with a clot. So that you can see that red thing right there. That is a heart attack. And again, you see it's not the plaque itself that's squeezed off the blood flow. It's your immune system attacking that plaque uh, some of that soft plaque squeezing out into the lumen and causing a heart attack. Back to your question, and thank you for um, letting me go down that bunny hole. So as you can see, you can say, okay, we'll go ahead and put a stent in, a little metal jacket, um, wherever we see plaque. You know, that, again, 
that doesn't work. What does work, though, is stopping the inflammation. How do you do that? We've got about a thousand videos on that. Uh, diet is integral and the number one priority and the number two priority. Diet to decrease your uh, insulin, your hour by hour insulin level. Diet to decrease your uh, glucose level and um, diet to de decrease your body fat. So then there's a bunch of other things. Sleep is critical to this. Uh, stress, cortisol, uh, exercise, the ability to maintain good muscle mass. Um, that is what's involved with now what, Steve? Thank you so much for, uh, for that question. Vagamod Sojourner, good morning, Doc. Uh, just returned from an ADV motorcycle trip in the Southwest. I am jealous. You know, I always wanted, a, a friend actually taught me how to ride motorcycles once, but later on, when I got to where I could afford a motorcycle, I had already uh, spent a lot of time during my internship in the ER. And having seen so many people with such major trauma, I swore off motorcycles uh, as fun as they might be. Anyway, hopefully, um, you had a healthy trip, uh, it sounds like. And the Southwest is beautiful. Janice and I just spent a week in Santa Fe, and we're going back again in uh, in November. You lost, Vagabond lost 11 pounds in, in seven days. Wow. I think I discovered a new diet for weight loss, not to mention a whole lot of fun. I'm sure it was a lot of fun. I'm jealous. E.T. himself, insulin of excess plus more equals a real disaster. Yeah. That's the truth. Um, fortunately, we have ways to measure glucose too high. We don't have ways of measuring insulin yet, but we're getting there. And for those of you who have interest in measuring glucose, the simple, easy way that anybody can access is just go to a drugstore and get a uh, finger stick uh, glucometer, gluco meaning glucose and meter meaning measurement. Um, we now have what we call CGM, continuous glucose monitoring. And anybody age 50 or above should be using one of those probably at least once a year. That's assuming you have no problems. Um, once you get to our level where you're having some problems, at least once a quarter. So you know exactly what sort of things impact your blood sugar. Going to sleep uh, at two, three, four in the morning, you should hit a low point in your blood sugar. Then uh, as you start getting closer to waking up, your cortisol will start cranking up and your blood sugar will start coming up. You shouldn't be above uh, optimally 90 when you wake up. Uh, clearly, um, some people are over 125. If you're over 125, you clearly meet the accepted de definition of full-blown diabetes. Between 100 and 125, you meet the accepted uh, definition of pre-diabetes. So um, that's where the um, CGM comes into play. Fort Worth Westside. Good morning, Dr. B. Does our body start producing glucose in response to eating food, even if one eats something with no carbs in it? You'll hear, uh, by the way, thank you, Fort Worth. It's a great question. Gives me an opportunity to talk about that. So two points. Uh, first, you'll hear that there is a neurologic, a brain 
related response to um, uh, uh, for insulin. Um, and yes, you will typically see people, even if they eat uh, no carbs at all, you'll st- still see a little bit of a bump of uh, glucose. That comes from uh, release of... Um, of some hormones, which release of glucose from the liver. Usually uh, there is some of that response. The other thing that you'll see is um, protein, protein causing some release of insulin and, uh, and some release of uh, glucose from the liver. So, yep, you can get some of that, uh, but nope. um, If you're not going over 120, uh, that's, that's about as safe as you can get, keeping it 120 or less. I've got plenty of full-blown type 2 di- diagnosed diabetics who the only time of the year their blood sugar gets over 120 is when we're doing a, an assessment, a, an OGTT, an IR, uh, insulin response. And it's because they're managing their diet. ET himself, no... Fort Worth, having a 70% blockage in an artery always requires stent if I don't have any symptoms such as a shortness of breath, chest pain, or other issues. I've changed lifestyles months ago. Oh, so does it have it? I mean, that's the whole point, Fort Worth. The, uh, if you speak to, if you go down that slippery slope of uh, agreeing to a stress test and then agreeing to the um, coronary angiogram that gets recommended, uh, they're going to find, usually at that point, they're going to find uh, a plaque. And the question is, okay, when does that plaque need to have a cover? And when will the cover on that plaque actually prevent a heart attack? And that's what we've been saying. It doesn't. This is not a plumbing issue. This is a metabolic issue, meaning... Uh, you look at the plumbing and you th- you see oh there's some there's some places in the heart in the vessel where I'm starting to get some squeezing, and the assumption is when you see that plaque, mm, I need to put a stent in there because that's where the the heart attack's going to happen. No, that's not the issue. That assumes that hemodynamics, blood flow, is what causes the heart attack. That's not what causes the heart attack. What causes the heart attack is uh, inflammation, a metabolic issue where your immune system's attacking that plaque and some soft inflamed plaque uh, leaches out into the bloodstream. That stuff causes a clot. It's a clot that causes the problem, not the plaque itself. So ET himself, too many carbs will load one's liver with glycogen. Exactly right. And the liver may convert this to glucose. That's true. Uh, We're having some tech challenges here. Vagabond, Doc, upon initial testing to diagnose your specific coronary artery disease, coronary artery disease, and chronic disease condition, uh, and one has to initiate the fix, initiated the fix. Testing is then done to determine if the fix is working or not. Uh, Thoughts. I'm not, uh, my major thought is I'm not sure exactly what you're saying. If you're saying, if what you're saying is we've created this whole uh, measurements using stents and, uh, you know, 
Framingham stints, uh, stress test, and well, it's Framingham stress test, coronary angiogram, uh, percutaneous angiogram in the cath lab. And then we've created a quote fix, end quote, with stents and cabbages. Then we go back and look at the angiograms later to see if it was quote fixed. Yeah, you're right. You're, the whole thing is a mythology. And the mythology is getting cracked up. Um, one of the reasons that usually it takes a long time for medicine to change. And here's why. Uh, more and more docs, I mean, you can't argue with the, the ischemia study trial, the uh, courage trial, some of these other trials, the, the orbiter trials. You can't argue with them. But here's the problem. There are whole clinics, clearly entire medical practices, the interventional cardiologists, even entire hospitals whose finances depend on this mythology. I hate to accuse people of, of practicing professionally based on dollars, but the reality is that's true too. I mean, it's true. We have to deal with that. And you know, doctors are human too. You end up seeing a lot of that kind of stuff. ET himself, Fort Worth, back the video as this is back up the video as this is mentioned. Steve Carter, how does testing out outfit determine percentage blockage? Um, well, it depends on what type of, of thing you're using. If you're there is a um if you're using the ultrasound, in other words, uh, uh, ultrasound or IMT technology, which uses ultrasound, you can use a, a thing called Doppler. Doppler, you've heard of in the weather, uh, with weather. And weather uh, Doppler is the same thing that submarines use to ping, to find, uh, uh, to find uh, other things in the water. And uh, your, uh, the good old boys, the fish finders, that's a Doppler as well. So basically what you're doing is looking to see uh, where, where things are in the water. You can use that same technology to look at flow. And you'll see that with uh, Doppler IMT. Um, in other, um, there are multiple ways of looking at flow. Uh, with, the, um, with the angiograms, you're looking, you're estimating based on how much it has pinched the um, the image of the artery that you'll see. E.T. himself, or save the vid and watch the first part. Uh, Lucien P. CIMT is safe, no radiation. Thank you, Lucien. Absolutely non-invasive. Absolutely. Everyone should be given a CIMT, probably yearly. Yep. So uh, I had a couple of folks on. I've had multiple episodes in the ring with the insurance guys asking them, why don't you just do this? And they'll say, well, you know, the, the science doesn't support it. It's garbage in garbage out. I got all that. So why are you supporting stress tests? It's even more garbage in garbage out. And they don't have a good answer for that. As you might imagine, Grant Jones, can an autophagy regimen improve heart valve stenosis? It improves your overall health, but a valve is a different issue. It's mechanics, and it is truly plumbing. Um, hope that helps. Steve Carter, are, Im are images provided in uh, color? You do see a lot of images 
uh, provided in color with things like uh, the uh, um, oh um, I just used it a second ago again another uh, word finding issue the, um, the Doppler studies you'll see the Doppler studies in color the colors are showing you know yellow is if it's flowing this way reds if it's flowing this way blue is it you know you see that you'll also see a lot of um, of the um, the image, the uh, nuclear image studies, like a nuclear stress test, and uh, using color as well. Lucian, why do people give nuclear stress tests versus echo stress tests? Well, if you go back and you look, Lucian, there's uh, actually and a slight improvement in the um, the quote the pickup the uh, sensitivity and specificity. If you get uh, the book, get our book on uh, on stress tests, why stress tests can't predict a heart attack, you, we go into painful detail on that, uh, on exactly why docs will order a nuclear stress test. What has happened is uh, stress tests have gone from 300 bucks to more like five to 15 to $25,000 based on the type of uh, technology they're using. And they're all based on that assumption that they can predict a heart attack. Unfortunate. Echo stress test uh, is less expensive, uh, uh, less problematic, but uh, again, less expensive. So that's a problem as well uh, for the, the people that are selling it. Luchan P, not severe enough to treat. They wait for him to die. Don't get that question, Lucian. I guess, um, Lucian, is this? Uh, are, are you the Lucian that works with um, uh, with Amy? If so, please identify yourself. I'd love to uh, to introduce you to the crowd. There's a cardiologist, a um, as we like to say, a reformed cardiologist uh, that works with Amy Dunneen out in uh, Washington. Parker Reed. Hey, Dr. Brewer, got to experience the cath lab firsthand a month ago, uh, a.k.a. I should have listened <laughs> to you. Well, you know, I, I have plenty of patience. It, it gets nerve wracking when you've got a doc who's a major believer in a in a stress test and an angiogram and they're just pressuring you. I, I, I get patients do that all the time and they say, I think I'm going to do it anyway. And my perspective is, I know, I understand. I get a lot of patients who say, no way, I'm not going to do it. I had a, well, I had a patient who was, was young. Uh, he had a uh, triglyceride problem. Uh, he owned and ran a, uh, a Filipino restaurant. And it, he uh, was eating multiple bowls of rice for every meal. And he, as you might imagine, had some uh, insulin resistance problems. He said, no, I'm not going to have a stent. And then they brought a, a thoracic surgeon in and said, you got to have this bypass or you're going to die. He said, nope, not going to do it. And um, he came to see me. We got started. He, yeah, he clearly had some insulin resistance. We worked on that. He made a big impact on his, uh, on his risk. Anyway, Parker says, I should have listened to you. I, in other words, uh, maybe regret going to the cath lab. Lucian Parker, what happened? Uh, Vagabond, 
phytologically speaking, it's easier to go beyond what is necessary for testing than it is to focus on enacting the quote fix end quote through lifestyle changes, supplements, meds, poor lifestyle equals poor health. No question. Lucian. So like flying an airplane or driving a car? I'm not sure I understand that Lucian. CT, CT scans have similar risks to angiography. Fort Worth, the cardiologist didn't seem to think a stent was a priority at the time of the cath probe. I don't plan on stenting and stick to a, li a strict lifestyle eating plan to stop further plaque formation. I think this may have been part of Lucianne's uh, question a minute ago. Uh, wasn't enough to cath. So in other words, uh, let you die. Um, that would make me think that this is probably not the reformed cardiologist. Um, Cardiologists make a what what we in Kentucky call a Kentucky windage, which is mean a good guess on does that plaque really need a stent or does this one? And that's why you go to them and there are multiple years of of experience doing this. And again, as we know now, those are years of building the mechanism and the fix and uh, doing this based on some big surprises which we didn't didn't predict in the science parker reed five dollars i appreciate that parker so much now uh um uh gilbert is showing you how to do a super chat that's what parker did you just go down to this section you click on it now why would i do that uh, the vast majority of what i'm doing as you can see it's a team approach I'm not good enough to answer questions and host at the same time. So we've got Gilbert hosting. Uh, Gilbert, would you like to say, would you please say hello to the crowd? Uh, Gilbert? Hello, everyone. So you see, Gilbert is there, but he's not here with me. He's in the Philippines. And when uh, Gilbert saw Parker uh, do that super chat, he put the super chat instructions up on the upper right. Uh, Philippines, uh, a $5, um, a $5 um, contribution to this channel makes a big difference uh, in Philippine, in the Filipino economy. Uh, I clearly support the lion's share of these activities through uh, my own uh, retirement savings and, um, Proceeds from seeing patients uh, that come in through the channel. But again, these uh, these contributions make a big difference. And as I mentioned in the very beginning, this is making a big difference, not only for Americans. Over half of our views at this point in time are coming outside of the continental U.S. Fort Worth, having a CIMT procedure in a few weeks with cardio risk. Would it be beneficial to also have a femoral IMT at the same time or is CIMT sufficient? For the vast majority of cases, CIMT is sufficient. Basically what you should do and what the, um, the, uh, the tech should do is say, look, I'm not seeing anything. It looks totally clear. We may want to just do a femoral just to make sure. Um, because if you see plaque in the carotid, then you don't have to disrobe. You don't have to pull your pants down to look at the femoral artery. Um, it's one of those things. You see this all the time in medicine where a positive test means something. 
a negative test doesn't mean quite so much. Mezzanine switched off of azetamide to five milligrams Crestor, generic risuvastatin. And, and when I mention a name like that, the uh, the financial the the uh, what do you call it? Uh, the artificial intelligence, the algorithm picks it up and says, "Oops, no more, uh, no more advertising on this on this video." So, again, that helps make up for some of that. So, mezzanine uh, switch from azetamide to Crestor or Resuvastatin three times a week, despite previous issues with statins four years ago. Looking for the anti-inflammatory benefits rel- rather than the strict LDL reduction. Thoughts? Well, that's what I think about all the time. I rarely uh, recommend a statin based on LDL. And it's really only going to be with people that have FH, genetic familial hypercholesterolemia. And uh, I'm not going to go down that bunny hole right now. Luchan P, why are stress tests so popular? Who benefits? Financially, the doctor and the clinic and the hospital benefit. Um, if you're really an old, isn't a CT better? Um, as we, uh, and if you're really young, you typically pass. So what about CT angiogram instead? So as I said, the, the numbers coming out of this early studies, Scott Hart was the study that I mentioned that showed that patients are a lot better off if they get whatever stress test the doc wants to order, whatever uh, other things the doc wants to order. But if they get that stress test, they begin to see, hmm, this is how much plaque I've got in my arteries. I need to slow down on the pasta. Gail, 716, doctor, I had a carotid angiogram done and almost went into craft two study. Thankfully, they disqualified me. Lifestyle changes took PSV from 418 to 273. Well, good for you. Thank you for your work and this channel. Thank you very much, Gail, for your comment and your your interest. If you could... uh, Uh, do a like, or even more importantly, if you can refer these, put these on your uh, YouTube, I mean, not your YouTube, your um, Facebook or Instagram, if you could put a little thing like that on there. What happens is the AI, the artificial intelligence, the, um, uh, the algorithm sees people coming in from other social media uh, outlets and say, Hmm, some humans think this is very, very good, very helpful. Uh, I'll put it in front of some other humans. So thank you so much, Gail. Jonathan Hull, good morning, Dr. B. Do they teach insulin resistance in the process that leads to type 2 diabetes in med school? Pardon, I, I, I know that's a serious question. Uh, my doc did not understand when I said I'm doing low carb to prevent it. Uh, most docs, especially my vintage, you know, I'm old as dirt. I'm 64. And so and I went through med school very young. I actually graduated in 1981. And no, they didn't teach much at all on that at that time. Um, when you, uh, But that's then. Most docs my age have retired or my vintage have retired. I don't plan on retiring. I plan on getting uh, shot out of my saddle at some point. Um, because I enjoy doing this too much, um, too much to quit. Um, but 
to your question, you know, you go back and read some of the studies from uh, the Hopkins groups, the, uh, the Harvard groups, the folks that are actually studying this. And what they're saying is even now, do you get, don't get enough curriculum on this issue, especially when you compare it to the fact that this is what's killing people. This is what's disabling people, you know, and very little coverage. It's a travesty and it creates a major goal for people like me. Uh, Anil Mohan, Dr. Brewer, great video. I had a calcium score of 10 four years ago. Two years ago, it was nine. IMT mean average thickness two years ago was 0.48 with no plaque. Should I be concerned about soft plaque? I am male, current age 54. What is my risk? Should I do a CT angiogram? I, I you know, if I were to see you, Anil, I wouldn't, I probably would not rec a C, recommend a CT angiogram. I would say, though, that you've got a positive calcium score. It's very low. And you've got a, um, you've got a very low uh, IMT. Here's, so you could say, hmm, I've got a positive calcium score, which means I have laid down a little bit of plaque, which mean, and I've calcified it, which means that I've gotten started on that plaque um, building thing uh, down that pathway. So, yep, I probably need a low-dose statin um, because of... Uh, I've been through, my body started down this process of cardiovascular inflammation. For somebody like you with so little plaque, obviously your risk is much, much lower than people that come in and see me and they have plaque of 100 or like somebody I saw yesterday with 1,700 and others that I've seen with way over 1,000, 2,000, 3,000. You know, the, the more calcification you've got, the more you've been in that process of building plaque and your body working to stabilize it. But yeah, you know, the standard, uh, this is one of the things I owe to Brad Bale and Amy Deneen. They came up with a standard saying, look, the minute you've got plaque, your body has demonstrated that it can form plaque. It's getting inflamed. Your arteries are getting inflamed. At that point, you probably should start a statin. No need for a high dose statin. No need to worry so much about the LDL, but uh, statin would would probably make a difference. So uh, that's the pros and the cons of it. Um, on one of my patients yesterday, by the way, reminded me of this question of, well, what about baby aspirin? I did a couple of videos on uh, baby aspirin a while back, uh, especially when some new studies like Aspree came out. And if you're interested in looking at that, you can Google YouTube my name and a spree trial, A-S-P-R-E-E, -E, um, or aspirin. And here's what the spree trial and some of the other trials found out. Uh, believe it or not, we are actually making some headway in terms of uh, decreasing heart, uh, heart attack and stroke. Um, because of that, people have a little bit less risk than they did when some of the original aspirin, baby aspirin studies were done. So uh, they started to see sort of a balance. And, they, and what's happened then is, again, docs looked at that, and you're hearing and seeing most docs not really talking about baby aspirin anymore and saying, hmm, it's probably not worth it. Well, if you're a, it, it's sort of like the uh, indications with statins. If you're 
if you're originally putting somebody on a statin because of their LDL level, then, you know, you're in a different, you're in a different uh, ballpark than I am, for example. The original uh, statement for putting somebody on aspirin, baby aspirin, has been age, age 55. You know, some people said age 60, depending on which standards committee you looked at. I I wouldn't recommend that as the reason. So if you're a 50, 55 year old, 60 year old who has no plaque, really doesn't need a baby aspirin or a statin uh, in my book. Uh, once you develop that plaque, though, then you're in a different risk category. Uh, at that point, I would recommend a um, small, uh, a low-dose statin as well, and only certain types of statins. I wouldn't recommend uh, a torvastatin. Again, uh, uh, well, uh, the AI doesn't like it when I mention brand names, but I wouldn't recommend a torvastatin. Um, and once you get plaque, I would recommend um, baby aspirin because you're in a very different risk category at that point in time. Uh, Dr. No, Junior Carey Thomas, any need to take turmeric for inflammation? I've got a lot of patients that swear on turmeric. I still take it. It's got some pretty good, um, you know, like supplements go, got some really good um, uh, data behind it. It's not earth shaking. Uh, it's not going to impact you as much as uh, stopping carbs if you have insulin resistance. But yes, I got a lot of folks that uh, that use it. Lucian P, why not CT angiogram for everyone over sixty? You know, that's a good question. I'd love to see a an OGTT for everyone starting at age forty, uh, and at least by age fifty at, at every year. I, that would, to me, would be a much better uptake in terms of helping people understand where they have disease. We learned a lot in this presentation. Thank you so much, Lucienne. I appreciate it. Renegade 6977. Hello, doc. Does black seed oil help significantly with our immune system? I'm sorry. I'm not familiar with black seed oil. Centil Venue. Does CT angiogram cover soft plaque? Uh, yes, but it doesn't tell you what's soft and what's not. That's the problem. Uh, what if CT angiogram is perfect, but your cholesterol levels are still high? Again, I see a lot of people, I, you know, given what I do, Centil, you can imagine I get a whole lot of people uh, with uh, genetic or familial hypercholesterolemia. These are people whose LDL, not total cholesterol, but LDL is typically 180 or above, you know, 200, 250, 300. And I can, I can tell you, despite what you might see on the FH um, website, there is a website made by and for people with FH, familial hypercholesterolemia. It doesn't create quite as much risk as you might imagine uh, until here's where the here's where all these uh, FH patients start going down the tubes when they get 50, 55, 60 and they start getting insulin resistant. So. That's where the risk starts. It's a multifactorial thing. And again, that cardiovascular inflammation, that prediabetes is a much bigger risk usually than a significant LDL. Now, 
people like to say, oh, well, you know, you want the higher the LDL, the better. And that's not necessarily true. And here's really good evidence of it. It's people that have what we call homozygous FH. These are people that have LDLs in the 300, typically 300 plus level. So what they did is they got the risk gene from their mom and then they got a risk gene from their dad. Really, they don't they don't metabolize LDL very well. So it just sticks around in their bloodstream. These people can have a heart attack in their teens and 20s from that LDL. So don't tell me LD, the higher the LDL, the better. And don't tell me that LDL doesn't matter at all. That's not really true. I mean, look at your homozygous FH patient and then tell me that again. Mahmoudi Aid. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. My latest blood test shows that my LDL is high. I'm taking Crestor 10 milligrams every other day. Is that a way to avoid the side effects of Crestor while dealing with my LDL? So Crestor has what we call a, a high, a long half-life, 17 hours. For those of you who don't know what half-life me means, it means your body will metabolize and get rid of half the concentration in this time period. So things like um, uh, Lavalo, Pivasta, Pitavastatin, uh, it's all the same, um, ge generics and brand names. It has, I think, like a four and a half hour half-life. Um, I think Pravastatin has like a, a couple hour half-life. Those you don't want to give every other day, but um, Resuvastatin has a 17 hour half-life. So you still have significant uh, blood levels even when you skip a day, which is what Mahmoud is talking about. Does that actually result in... Um, decreasing side effects. Not so much because you still got it in your bloodstream, but you're not amping it up every day. So a lot of people think maybe it does. I don't think it does a whole lot. But when you're taking these lower doses, I mean, I just don't have a lot of people that have a lot of problems with statins because uh, we're giving much lower doses. Uh, I typically use five milligrams a day and uh, lower five milligrams every other day what I used with a patient yesterday. Uh, Renegade 6977, hello doc. If I take a clove of garlic each day on an empty stomach, a teaspoon of black seed oil and cinnamon tea, can that replace statins to lower cholesterol? Probably not. Uh, you know, again, you get a lot of good stuff from, uh, from a lot of supplements. You know, I'll tell you the supplements. One set of supplements is what they made statins out of originally. Um, uh, red rice yeast and a red yeast rice. I keep getting confused over the, the sequence of those three words. So a lot of people say, well, I'll just take that because it's safer. Hmm. It's not safer. Number one, the statin technology has gone beyond that and gotten safer. Number two, there's a lot more supervision and uh, general uh, statistics watching these. So I feel much safer on a low dose statin than I would on red rice yeast or red yeast rice. Um, there are a couple of other statins that are clearly meet the safety category, berberine and bergamot. Uh, they have similar types of impacts, but not nearly as strong. So again, I hope that's helpful. Luchan P, cholesterol didn't tell the state of your arteries. That's true. Bart Robinson, I'm a little late today, <laughs> but hello. Hello to you, Bart. Thank you for joining. Thanks for the interest in the comments. Gator Bear Creek, 
Gator Beer Geek. I've seen mention that K2's ability to remove calcium from arteries is reduced if taken with a meal with dairy. Do you believe that's a real concern? I don't. Um, I just, I, I, I don't think that's based on a lot of evidence at this point. Vagabond, off-road, stay away from cars. <laughs> You're talking about the uh, the trauma thing. Yeah, again, one of the patients I, I saw yesterday ended up in the ICU from a bicycle wreck. And he didn't run into a car. He just slipped. Uh, there was a traction issue. Uh, so I understand that, again, these things are fun. And, uh, you, you know, it's like it's like Pogo said, you pay your money, you take your licks. Uh we all have to make decisions regarding what kind of risks we're going to take. Fort Worth West Side. My dad, who's a pathologist for 45 years, used to call them murder cycles. Yeah. Beth Edens, 57, seven years ago, had a massive heart attack, followed by a 3X bypass for blockage of 90, 95, and 100%. I recently had yearly labs, and my inflammation markers have changed in the past year. C-reactive protein, plaque 2, have both decreased substantially. However, my MPO has jumped from 397 to 1152. According to 5.1 and eating uh, according is, I think what that you meant was, did you mean A1C is 5.1? And eating keto for two years. I've been taking a lot of omega-3 fish oil, which I now understand may be causing oxidation. Any suggestions for health focus? Um, if you haven't had a craft insulin survey, it would help under, help you, or just a basic insulin survey, OGTT with insulin values. It would help you understand what level of insulin resistance and uh, diabetes, prediabetes that you have. It sounds like you've already discovered that's a big issue. And that's one of the key things to notice. Um, one of the things I would say about your labs, MPO, C-reactive protein and MPO often have false positives. C-reactive protein, because it's not just cardiovascular inflammation. If we give uh, um, flu vaccines to 100 people, 48 hours from now, uh, 67 of them will have a positive C-reactive protein. So uh, that's one thing to keep, uh, to be aware of. With MPO, it's looking at that enzyme in the nucleus, uh, the neutrophils, the white blood, one of the colonies of white blood cells, one of the types of white blood cells. And here's the thing. If they leave, if the venipuncturist leaves that those too long, for example, they draw it now and they don't spin it down until, you know, more than half an hour later, then that uh, MPO is going to leach out into the blood, into the blood sample and cause a false high MPO. There's another way you can get a false high MPO, and that is when they're pipetting the serum sample off of the blood sample. If the edge of the pipette goes down into the white cell layer, you start pulling white cells into the measurement uh, sample. Those white cells will release MPO, and you'll get another false positive MPO. So be very careful and skeptical about that MPO. Thank you, Beth, so much for sharing that. Uh, old Roscoe, I've heard motorcycles called, motorcyclists called Oregon Diners, but I'm one of them. I, I think I have one of them since I was 14. Fred Turner, keto, low carb, Mediterranean, which is the most healthy choice? Ah, that's an argument. That's a major debate. I will tell you, 
in terms of my patients, the vast majority of them do better at a kinder, gentler, which would be a low carb, more like uh, 50 to 150 uh, grams per day or 50 to 100 grams per day. Keto uh, for a lot of people is just very hard to maintain on a regular basis. For some people, and they're in the minority, um, they can, they're, better, they're better off never, ever having a carb and just uh, remaining keto. Here's the thing. It's not really up to me in terms of science. It's up to you and what you can fit in a permanent lifestyle change. If you look at the studies, the studies are all very clear. Any of these work very well, especially the keto and low carb. Mediterranean, you can get too many carbs if you have insulin resistance. So be very careful if you're doing, quote, standard Mediterranean to not get all those, quote, whole grains, all that apple juice, all that grape juice, stuff like that. You may see that on the Mediterranean diet, but you may be loading up with carbs. Be careful with that. But beyond that, the real issue is, and again, as shown in, in scientific evidence, it's got to be a lifestyle change. It's not a six-month diet, or clearly not a two-month diet. Luchan, Chana Dell is a good food for managing glucose. Not familiar with that. Tired looking for name, a, um, a super chat. Thank you so much, Tired. Uh, and thank you. For, and he says, thank you for the life-saving information. My mood aid, my recent cholesterol blood test results are 257H, oh, total 257, HDL 52, triglycerides 188. I'm going to stop us right there, my mood, and say your triglyceride over HDL ratio is over three. That's not a good place to be. I am guessing you are not restricting your carbs and you have an insulin resistance problem. I'll make that guess right here, not having seen you as a patient, just seeing those two numbers. LDL is 168, non-HDL uh, non cholesterol 205. I'm, I'm taking Crestor 10 every other day. Is that a good way to handle my LDL? Uh, I... Yeah, you've got a significant LDL number. I'm more concerned about that triglyceride over HDL. Uh, my, my recent cholesterol, but again, you know, it, I have to say all of that with the with the caveat that I'm that's the purpose is not to give individual advice. I have to I have to see an individual as a patient and understand everything that's uh, going on with you, including your own. Uh, habits, your own dietary habits, what you can and can't do uh, to make a, an informed choice. Tired looking for name. Thank you for your information. Oh, okay. So we got um, Junior Carrie Thomas. Can plaque be reversed with diet? If so, well, I'm a poster boy for that. I, I went from 73-year-old arteries down to 57-year-old arteries. And it wasn't just the... Um, variation. I was getting them every couple of months and it was, there was a clear and steady line with decrease. I'm not the only one. There are others that have done this as well. Here's one thing you need to realize though, even for me, for others that have had a quote decrease in arterial age, a large part of that IMT thickness is made up of inflammatory cells, liquid. If you've got inflamed plaque, or even if you've got what we call heterogeneous plaque, as you began to shrink it, a lot of what you're getting rid of or getting out of that layer is not so much the LDL, the small dense LDL. You're getting that liquid in those inflammatory cells out of there. 
that shrinks that area and quote, shrinks your arterial age, shrinks your, uh, reverses your plaque. Luchan, $5. I'm not a cardiologist, but I learned a lot from your presentations. You actually probably at this point know a lot more than a whole lot of cardiologists about how to prevent this issue. Thank you so much, Luchan. Another, uh, uh, another, uh, Super chat. Grant Goldberg. I watched a doc about no oils. I think there's a lot to that. We've been cooking with animal fats for a hundred thousand years. No problem. Cooking oils come on scene. Millions die from heart attack. Well, a lot of things came on the scene, like the obesity epidemic, uh, et cetera. I've looked at some of that uh, cooking oil stuff. I think there probably is some, uh, some validity as well, but again, it's like supplements and a lot of the other things you they get dwarfed by the fact that people still walk around uh, with a BMI of 30, even 25. And most of that increase made up with body fat and they're uh, eating pasta every day, you know, pizza and their their blood sugars are hanging up around 150, 160, 170, burning the, the intimate lining of their artery on a regular basis. Um once we get all of that cleared out of our of our numbers, then at that point, you know, then it makes a difference. But uh, I think that's a much bigger issue right now than the than the cooking oil thing. Uh, James Cantor, everybody, please like the video. Thank you, James. I appreciate the reminder. And the idea is again, it's that AI that uh, algorithm. If you can. Uh, if you do a like on that, you end up making an impact in terms of this being sent out to more people. So they start asking the question. They start learning how they can prevent heart attack. There's uh, death and stroke. Thanks for your show. Great as usual. See you next week. Thanks, uh, Fort Worth. We've, uh, we're just, well, I thought we were done. I'm going to see if we can zip through the rest of them because I've got some, I've got a patient in half an hour and I've got to do some other things before that. Lucian, can an insulin index reduce insulin resistance over time? Um, oh, can an insulin index diet? I'm not familiar with that specific terminology, but that's what we're all about, Lucian, decreasing your insulin release and decreasing your uh, glucose release, your starches, your carbohydrates. And yes, it does. Um, quite often it doesn't, it depends on what caused it. Here's the thing. If um, if it's caused by age and a lot of uh, a lot of it is, I, for example, have insulin resistance, even though I don't have a huge amount of body fat, uh, that tends to not be quite as reversible. You can continue to make impact by good sleeping habits, decreased stress, decreased cortisol and uh, increasing muscle mass. Those things all help in this space, even if you don't have any more body fat to lose. But for those of us who have 10 pounds of body fat, 10 losing 10 pounds of body fat makes a huge difference in terms of your measured insulin resistance. Tired looking for name, Dr. Brewer, what's your opinion on at-home lipid test kits such as cardio check? Haven't used them a whole lot. Um, I don't think they're that bad, but again, it depends on what you're looking for. Uh, Junior Carey, is there any benefit in taking arginine? What about the Nobel Prize? I've got several videos on that. I, I think there is some benefit. Um, again, it's like most supplements. It, it's there. Uh, I take them. It work. Uh, you know, I think it, there's evidence that it works. But again, 
compared to what? Uh, James Cantor, is any any preparation I should do for my CMT or just show up relaxed? It's the letter, show up relaxed. And the biggest preparation is make sure you're getting it from a, from a good group that can uh, give you some good information. Training Dragon, 1964. I'm 56, calcium score of 330. Take a statin for 13 years. Significantly improved my lifestyle. Not diabetic. Cholesterol numbers are good. Sure, I'd be worried. Here's the thing, training. If I could tell you the number of full-blown diabetics, we had another one this week, came to me and said, no, I've seen multiple doctors, and I do not have diabetes. Well, his fasting glucose was over 190. Now, I don't think that was true fasting. But once it gets up to 190, does it really matter whether that was fasting or not? That, you know, on practical basis, that person's got diabetes. And he was one of an army of people who've come to see me and said, I'm not diabetic. Right. Harry, so again, get a, major thing I would say for you, I'd say for most people, and that is at least please get an OGTT insulin response. Uh, a craft insulin survey is another way of phrasing that. Harry Pelaglu, uh, Grant, interesting you mentioned. I went on a no, no oil vegan diet and my stamina, heavy feet and out of breath disappeared. Maybe the no oils helped. It very well might. Uh, Parker Reed, the cath lab experiences went beyond the stress you stress test you discussed. The outcome was the interesting part. Well, Parker, uh, uh, let Michelle know. Maybe you'd, if you'd want to come on the, the channel and share, we'd be very happy to have you. Uh, Bavel Scott Photography, hello. Hello, Bavel. What test do I need to do the test inflammation in my body? I did a blood test for dimer. So for the D-dimer. Uh, so it's, uh, we've done several videos, just look up Ford Brewer, YouTube, uh, cardiovascular inflammation tests. There's four that we tend to focus on, uh, C-reactive protein, uh, LPPLA2, um, MPO, myeloperoxidase, and, uh, what am I leaving out? Uh, oh, microalbumin creatinine ratio. Uh, and again, you can call Michelle at 859-327-2792. Uh, uh, no, that's not the right number. 859-721-1244. That's 859-721-1244. Um, yeah, there you go. Thank you, Gilbert. And uh, she can help you get set up for that test. Um, what a, AK, what, what about the new antisense LP uh, little A drugs? Do you think it's worth the risk of being in the drug trial if you have survived a heart attack? I do. Uh, well, I mean, it depends on, really, AK, it depends on what level of heart attack you've had, how much uh, muscle damage you got, what your LP little A numbers are. Again, that's why this is not really, you know, for those of you who want to say, well, this is my specific condition, what do you think? I don't really think anything until... I know a lot more details, um, but I can see somebody uh, with just the information you're talking about. I can see some people uh, it making sense for and some people it not. Uh, Sparky, calcium scores 1320. Coronary angiogram showed me max 20%, no stent. Would a CIMT be advised? I would get a CIMT uh, for anybody. Uh, over age 50, especially if you've never had one, because what you want to see is, do you have soft plaque? 
And what you've just told me says you've got plaque, but it doesn't say whether it's soft. Nick Carducci, if FDA has a problem with contents of red yeast rice, that's why we need review board for every seller. Steve Carter, Doc, what's your opinion of EDTA chelation on plaque? So chelation is based on the assumption that calcium is a, uh, quote, heavy metal, end quote. You could debate that, but you get these metals in your uh, plaque and you can do what's called uh, chelation. That's where you get your leach metal out. And when you do that, you're going to get rid of plaque. Mm. And there's actually a couple of studies which showed a, a, a brief, weak research signal that they might help. But when you actually look at the overall science, chelation, the, the evidence behind chelation is just not good. And EDTA is one of the most common types of chelation they use. Old Roscoe, great show, very informative. You now have me motivated to finish the day with a healthy lifestyle. Well, good for you, Old Roscoe, and thank you very much. Steve Carter, great podcast, good questions, all specific answers. Thank you, Steve. Nick Carducci, $4.99. Um, super chat. What if antibodies are just defenders of plaque? And bacteria is the cause of infection exclusively. You know, that's interesting, uh, Nick. There has been some evidence that there may be, you could make a case on that. But the evidence really didn't pan out very well, or it hasn't so far. Steve Carter, my doctor said CMT is useless, as we know I have plaque. Is that for real? Well, let me ask you this question. Does your doctor know whether it's soft plaque or hard? Or how much soft plaque you have? If your doctor can answer that question, then maybe it is useless, but your doc can't answer that question. Magic Man 84, how do you get rid of double jaw without an operation? No idea what you're talking about, Magic Man. Thank you so much uh, for those of you who have attended. Thank you for your interest, your participation, and I'll look forward to seeing you again later.